We're back with another edition of the Federalist Radio Hour. I'm Emily Jashinsky, culture editor here at The Federalist. As always, you can email the show at radio at thefederalist.com. Follow us on Twitter at FDRLST. Make sure to subscribe wherever you download your podcasts as well. I'm so happy to be joined once again by the great Spencer Clavin, host of the Young Heretics podcast. Spencer, how's it been? Hey, Emily, it's great to hear your voice again. It's been too long, but uh, I'm doing well. How about yourself? Good. It's great to hear your booming vibrato uh, through the <laughs> headphones. <laughs> it's the only family heirloom. Every man in my family has exactly the same voice. What and a gift. it sounds just like this. It's Yeah, I, I would rather have that than like a set of steak knives or whatever else people pass down in the family. Well, if you combine the voice with the steak knives, then you have a serious combination. <laughs> That's absolutely true. I should work on that for future generations. Generations. So the reason that I wanted to get Spencer on as soon as we could is because uh, last week, inevitably, our conversation, um, even even when we sort of tried uh, to to focus on domestic issues, um, along with the crisis in Ukraine, it kept coming back to the state of the West. And Spencer is a student of the West, um, an avid student of the West, and actually through Young Heretics, something of a teacher <laughs> when it comes <laughs> to the West and the history of the West. Um, Spencer, before we we dive into anything immediate or specific, I guess I'm curious as to what the sort of young heretics <laughs> read on the situation is. I mean, as we're as we're digesting it, and as someone who comes to this question and this moment with the the perspective of history that you know is is more thirty thousand foot than the cable news cycle. Um, what have you been is there any is there any major takeaway that you've sort of landed on so far? Well, thanks for asking it from that angle because I think I'm really lucky on young heretics it's it's not a current events show. We don't record like week by week uh, minute by minute. And that's by design. I think there are plenty of excellent places where you can get, you know, up to the up to speed analyses of exactly what just happened five minutes ago. But that's not what Young Heretics is. As you say, it's it's a longer view. And especially in moments of panic and crisis, like we are certainly living through, I find it really helpful to, first of all, ask, you know, have we been here before? And the answer is almost always yes, especially, you know, when you're talking about the West, which is not just limited to one nation. It's not just limited to even one political ideology, right? It's this whole grand tradition that we're all involved in. We're all a part of carrying forth the heritage of Athens and Jerusalem and the you know many great cultural artifacts that have come out of that, but also just the, the way of life that, that has emerged from that. And I really firmly believe that America is the best and, and greatest flower of what the West has to offer, even still, even now. And when it comes to, you know, being on the verge of destruction and disaster, the answer to the have we been here before question is yeah, absolutely yes, a hundred thousand gajillion times. Um, and that's not in any way to uh, belittle or reduce the scale of how bad things can get. I, I don't mean to come across as like, well, it's just, you know, yet another crisis. Um, but 
there is a, a phenomenon that we've talked about in young, on Young Heretics since the very beginning, which the Greeks called anacyclosis, and which translates roughly to the cycle of regimes. Um, this is expressed in modern times best by the sort of maxim, you know, hard times make strong men, strong men make good times, good times make weak men, weak men make hard times. And it's this kind of cycle that really comes from Herodotus and some of his observations, great Greek historians, observations about the rise and fall of the Persian Empire. And something we forget is that, you know, Greece beat Persia in this radical upset victory. We think of this as like this is one of the great foundational moments of the West that you know that then came Athens and you know, Socrates and and Plato and the great tragedians and this wonderful glistening flower. Um, but of course, one of the things that Herodotus kept saying was you know Persia was was just as great before you, and you know you and your in your greatness will think that this is going to last forever, but it's not. So you you know remember remember pride, remember hubris, um, and I think that you know look nothing is written in the stars and I don't believe in doomsaying I don't believe that you know this is going to be the absolute end because we've simply sinned away our day of grace and you know there, you'll, you'll hear a lot of that and every time disaster strikes you hear people saying well this is just you know just the end uh, America still has a lot of fight left in her in in my opinion and you know we, we're in we, we're in a bad election cycle so that makes it worse but in point of fact the thing to remember here is that you know the the wisdom of the West doesn't depend on things going well. In fact, just just the opposite. The whole point is that we've we've been through crises like this before. Imagine that the absolute worst you can think of will happen. Nevertheless, right, your job is still the same. It's still to seek truth and do the best that you can in your sphere of action, which is a calming thought for me. So I want to ask you about um, this strange phenomenon of neoliberal media progressives, um, the sort of typical political establishment, uh, Beltway denizens, um, having this resurgent respect, <laughs> strange hmm. new respect, you could say, for nationalism um, right. and self-defense. And this has been really interesting to watch because nationalism is derided every time it's brought up by a politician on the right or a thinker on the right. They are often smeared as a white nationalist, just sort of reflexively. They are, uh, you know, they will be conflated. All the, the boundaries will sort of be blurred between actual bigotry and, and what they're talking about. And yet, the nationalism of the Ukrainian people is now being framed as as inspiring. And I think, of course, it is inspiring. Um, it's interesting, is it not, to see this, this and I, I think this, I'm wondering if this is actually a very, very much a good thing. I mean, it's, it's obviously terrible that there's this level of uh, hypocrisy and double standards, but um, it, it seems to me somewhat refreshing that there mm. is still an impulse in uh, the West um, to to celebrate nationalism and self-defense. Well, it is uh, a, quite a spectacle to watch you know, this is a this is a country that's now arming its citizens and, you know, conscripting people into the military in, as you say, a desperate and, in my opinion, quite admirable fight for its life. And and suddenly the, sort of ancient, really. It is. Yeah. I mean, there there have been reports. I should I should say that it's kind of hard to tell 
what's true and what's false coming out of all these different reports. That's been one of the, the most difficult parts of this whole crisis. But there have been reports of things like, you know, a, a, a fellow a Ukrainian soldier who blew himself up to, to destroy a bridge, which is almost exactly a story from the early days of Rome. Horatius Cocles is kind of the great folk hero that in the battle with Lars Porsena, he stood on the bridge and defended it, you know, in some in some versions of the story to his death. Um, and so, yeah, there are these really primal one read on on the phenomenon you're describing is that when reality comes back as as it does when in foreign policy crises then suddenly you know men have to be men all of a sudden again and, and countries borders are are wonderful and you know we we get reacquainted with the basic truths which really never never uh leave us this is the gods of the copybook heading right the kind of basic facts of reality that you, do, you can deny them if you're prosperous but once things start to go wrong you have to kind of d defend your country and you have to be in favor of of valor and courage so i think that you're right there is a an encouraging note there in that you know unfortunately when things sometimes it takes a crisis for people to kind of come to grips with with reality and that is always the silver lining that's in some sense that's kind of the whole story of the old testament is that you know the, the nation of israel like all people standing in for all people you know is, is given great prosperity by god and this leads them as they say in deuteronomy to forget god and then something comes back to bite them and then they you know that that tragedy say the exile in babylon is kind of the the seed of renewal or the way that we get back to so that is yes absolutely part of this cycle the only part of it that is disheartening to me is to see how that story about Zelensky and ukraine is getting folded into this just completely mythological psychodrama i think at the same time as as the crisis in russia is very real and, and our response ought to be you know sober and serious we've also kind of just taken this ritualistic uh, religious playbook that we had in COVID, this kind of desperate need for rituals and, and good guys and bad guys. Um, and we have kind of transposed it right onto our imaginary ideas about this conflict. I mean, I wonder how much of the sort of liberal endorsement of nationalism is really just because the Ukraine is somehow standing in here for like the free world or some grand uh, idea of uh, human progress against, you know, the evil uh, encroaching empire. And that I think is kind of a, just part of our old, our old fantasies again. You know, what's interesting about that point is human freedom or the free world. Um, I hope that there's still a longing for the free world and a mm. celebration of the free world left in the hearts of many of our countrymen. Um, although I question it because over the course of COVID, there was, I think, this congealing um, on the left. And I actually think probably more people in the center than um, some folks realize that freedom is having your neighbors forcibly masked so that you as, a, let's say, an, immuno, an immunocompromised person can be free to go to Starbucks or you know, shop at the mall. Um, and that concept of freedom has always been, of course, um, articulated and it's wrong. But I, I wonder if you think COVID really really drove that into a lot of people's minds that in, in a way that hadn't happened in America before. Um, I, I'm yeah. curious what you think. Well, I mean, when you start to get into the stuff of war is peace, freedom is slavery, right? Uh, the immediate name to invoke is George Orwell. 
And usually people think of 1984 and the sort of dystopian horror of, of sort of the, the state seizing control of language. But I think Orwell was actually even smarter than we give him credit for about this stuff. He had an essay, and some people still, I think, read, uh, Politics in the English Language, mm -hmm. in which he talks about the way that in politics, and especially in kind of modern uh, bureaucratic politics, words get evacuated of their meanings. And interestingly, one of the examples he uses is fascism. Right? Fascism is a word that uh, already in, I think, 1954, when he wrote that essay, you could just toss this word around to me like very bad thing, right? Thing I don't like. Um, and democracy, right? Very good thing, thing I like. <laughs> and I think that freedom is another one of those words, unfortunately, that uh, look, on a deeper level, the human heart is a factory of idols. This is how language works. You know, we lose connection to the, the spirit of the meaning of things. We just start to use them as bumper stickers or as slogans. Um, and that's when a culture is in decline. And that's when we're vulnerable to the kind of manipulation and propaganda that I think we're really now seeing. I, I don't think that it's like, you know, people... I don't think it's even as sophisticated as perhaps you were suggesting where like people have redefined freedom to mean a certain kind of collectivist, you know, mentality that uh, you need to do something so that I can be free. It's, it's, it's actually much more primal and simple than that. It's just a freedom is now just a word meaning like the good guys, the good thing that the good guys fight for. And if somebody on your team uses it, then, you know, you're in favor of, of that thing. It's just kind of part of how language decays. The Washington elites strike again, asleep at the switch as the markets fluctuate, losing Americans' hard-earned money. Seems like it's time to look for places to invest with a little less Washington in the mix. How about an asset that's been around for 277 years? I'm talking about fine art. Not many people know, but returns in the contemporary art market specifically have outpaced the S&P 500 by 164% from 1995 to 2021. So it makes sense why the ultra-wealthy have been hoarding it for centuries. But now there's a startup called Masterworks that's allowing access for all, just as investors are looking for new areas to diversify into, too. And how they're doing it is changing the game. They enable you to buy shares that represent an investment in a specific artwork so you can invest in multi-million dollar paintings without needing the multi-million part. And Federalist Radio Hour listeners get special priority access. Just go to masterworks.art slash Federalist. That's masterworks.art slash Federalist. And see important Regulation A disclosures at masterworks.io slash CD. Hmm. That's really interesting. And I want to ask you to continue pulling at this thread about, um, I mean, it's really about modernity, about, it, but it, you're, you're citing this sort of pre-modern, actually, citing this to pre-modern uh, things where peace, <laughs> yeah. the, the difference between peace times and, and war times and, and how they shape us and change us. Um, because I think a lot of that does have to do with, or, or the way that that's evolved in the Western hearts and minds. I think some of that really does come down to, if not all of it, um, technology and the comforts that we're afforded um, that, that sort of keep us 
us at a distance or at an arm's length from the conditions of life that have plagued humanity um, since its inception. Uh, this is this is something that's changed really rapidly over the last ten years, but let alone over the last you know several centuries. Um, the way that we live our lives is just it is so so very different, um, and I think that's partially what's so poignant about watching the struggle in Ukraine right now is that mm-hmm. it, it is so base and and primal in so many ways but you know like looking back on vietnam or like looking back on on world war one um there's something sort of technologically eerie about it as well yeah i think that the primal nature of it all helps explain both kind of why on the left it's being made into this grand mythological drama of freedom versus slavery, good versus evil, um, which I think is is kind of wrong. But also it, it feeds this desire that we have to be part of something meaningful, to be, you know, in a movement with with sort of surging feelings of of strength and, and moral clarity. I mean, really moral virtue is is what the left has been seeking for a long time in a world where, as you say, many of the conflicts over moral virtue have been either neutered or simply resolved. You know, this this the constant invention of new social justice causes is another example of the exact same impulse, you know, that if if it's a if it's violence for somebody to be misgendered, then we can suddenly be marching in the streets again the way we were in the civil rights era when there really were, you know, grand moral causes and crusades to be a part of. So that, that softness and comfort does create the need to sort of invent grand narratives and dramas that you can be a part of. But it also, I think, afflicts the right when you get these kind of LARPing, like Putin stands, right? Yes, you all, you yes. have the same thing that, oh, Putin is like some, it somehow represents, you know, the, the old world and the forces of kind of primal uh, virility and strength, <laughs> which is like kind of already what he wants out there himself. But we, we're kind Notoriously of virile, Vladimir Putin. Famously virile. I mean, <laughs> man boobs for days. We just, <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's funny that when you think about it, that he actually this is this is kind of his PR shtick. Mm-hmm. You know, the riding shirtless on horseback. And I think that we are susceptible to that. And I include myself in this. Not not being particularly a Putin stand, but nevertheless, like those of us on the right who feel the kind of neutered uh, flatness of modern life as it is sold to us by kind of like the Davos set, right? By the yes. World Economic Forum. Um, that you're, you'll own nothing and you'll be happy. This is just a kind of placid future where nothing is really too terrible and everything gets better and better materially without any real spiritual. And so this is why you see people sharing like, oh, look at this beautiful cathedral that they built in, in Russia. It's not because like Putin is any great friend to like Christian flourishing. Uh, (laughs) I mean, you can be arrested for like preaching the wrong brand of Christianity in Russia, but so, but, but because that idea of a civilization that is still 
uh, confident in its endorsement of the good, the true, and the beautiful, and that actually thinks that there are stakes in that, right? Um, and, you know, wanting to be a part of that is is part of why the, the right also, I think, gets this conflict wrong as well. I mean, what we're trying desperately to recover is some way that America can be confident in the actual good, actual true, and actual beautiful. Um, and, 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 and then there's, you know, there's so much still that we need to be working on, right? A technology that threatens the integrity of our human bodies, right? There's a moral crusade for you. Or like, you know, reproductive, uh, like the, the way that we've just aborted babies on mass in this country for so long like there's a moral crusade but the um the sense that there is no the sort of suffocating sense that there's nowhere that we can get behind something we really believe in that's afflicting a lot of kind of fantasy rhetoric about the ukraine crisis i would say so as you're speaking um i realized that i absolutely have to ask you about the sultanitsin sultanitsin speech at harvard mm. um where he contrasts his life in the west and his life in the east and um i, I don't want to dwell on inside baseball or on twitter sects that um really matter very little outside of that bubble um but I do think people are sort of reconsidering. Um, I mean, I know people are reconsidering the the virtues of sort of liberal freedom, classically liberal freedom, and and saying, well, maybe where we went wrong all along yeah. <laughs> was with liberalism. You know, maybe all of this, all of this is, is sort of terribly wrong. And I really appreciate you saying, you know, that you you don't fall into that camp. Um, although I'm sure you have a lot of nuanced perspectives on the the various arguments. But what would your what would your message be or what would your response be to, uh, I think, a lot of maybe young conservatives who do say, you know, I, I would rather live um, in, a, in a nationalist, you know, faith based country than our sort of um, commoditized uh, hellhole. Wow. Yeah, these are great questions. I mean, I will briefly just plug Young Heretics here because we have been doing Solzhenitsyn. We're doing kind of a long march through the Gulag Archipelago. A long and, march through the as Gulag As it were, if, if you will. Yeah, you see what I did there? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, just, you know, series of episodes on. Because uh, honestly, I, I think Jordan Peterson talks about this, that like the facts that we don't know about the millions dead in Gulag or from famine, the way that we know about the, the horrors of the Holocaust is it is a failure of our education system. And in some cases, it was an, a purposeful failure to kind of cover over one atrocity of the 20th century, um, not to detract from the other atrocity from from Hitler's atrocities, but simply to say, like, what Stalin did was was equally horrifying in many ways. And so I've been going through it. And, and yeah, I would add to your citation of his his Harvard speech a letter, a famous letter from Whitaker Chambers to William F. Buckley. Chambers, you know, defected from the Soviet underground, was a major part of the Alger Hiss trial, and kind of admonished Buckley for his optimism, which is something, you know, I, I, I'm also an optimist, and so this is a useful caution. He says, the West, the West is done. Like, yeah, there, there, I see no hope for renewal. You know, the great American century was beginning. It all looked like it was going to be great. But Chambers simply said, you know, no, no, no. Uh, the best we can hope for now is to snatch a fingernail of a saint or a handful of ashes and preserve it for a time when men realize that it wasn't always as bad as it is now or as bad as it will get down the line. And 
you know, this is also this is kind of the the version of that anticyclosis story that says we're just kind of done. We already wrote our sort of uh, promissory note for disaster. And it was somewhere in the 1800s with John Stuart Mill, basically, that uh, this idea, which which predated Mill, but that really got its advocate in Mill, um, that the best way to truth, the best way forward is, is to let a thousand flowers bloom. And actually, this was simply a misguided idea based on no evidence, right? That like the, the mark, quote unquote marketplace of ideas always takes place within certain parameters. And those parameters are are set ideally by a community that believes in the truth. And so uh, you you can then become what Buckley would have called an epistemological optimist, right? There, there's actually there's actually no use in just letting everybody do everything all the time. Um, and, and in fact, what you will ultimately get then is just a slide into debauchery. And, you know, this, to get inside baseball, famously represented by Patrick Deneen and why liberalism failed, a whole raft of, of books that have raised this argument in various ways. Um, and I am a kind of a qualified, I have a kind of qualified agreement with this, which is to say that just like the word freedom became an empty slogan that people could use to manipulate uh, COVID hawks into endless lockdowns. So the idea of liberalism and the free market in the American context became a kind of bumper sticker, I think, for a lot of conservatives who were defending against a, an increasingly authoritarian left and who basically rewrote the founding of the country to be purely and entirely a story about American liberation from all restraints of tradition, you know, breaking away from the old world, ditching the English kind of tradition of common law and entering into this Rousseauian, purely Lockean future where, you know, the, the Church of Satan can worship and the Jews can worship and the Muslims and the Christians and all together in one big happy family. And none of you know, there will never be any distinctions between those things. Things. And I think that the, the problem with this is that liberalism understood as the kind of autonomy to, you know, seek the truth in, on your own terms was always only the jewel in the crown of Western civilization and tradition. That is, it's not something that's meant to stand on its own. It lives within a context. And even when you go back and read guys like Mill or before Mill, you know, John Milton making a great defense for freedom of speech, you notice that they take for granted certain, certain limits. Like Milton basically says, well, we're certainly not going to be publishing atheism. And Mill says, well, if a guy was trying to walk off a bridge, you, you can stop him because you can assume that he's insane. They're able to take that for granted because they live in a society where there are already kind of norms in place that, you know, God may, you know, we may argue about what God is like, but what he, one thing he doesn't do is kill babies, right? And so, so there are certain things that are now so eroded, certain cultural assumptions that are now so eroded that uh, liberalism can't function because it doesn't have those, those guardrails of tradition and cultural agreement. Um, and so, yeah, in that context, of course, liberalism is going to trend inevitably toward drag queen story hour. But unfortunately, like <laughs> the, arc of, the to... moral arc of history is long and it bends towards drag queen story hour. <laughs> <laughs> Precisely. And you now see, you know, <laughs> you're having arguments in Florida about 
like whether th third graders should be allowed should be taught by uh, public employees uh, you know that it's okay to cut their genitals off uh and and it's it's simply unconscionable at a certain point to defend that because well it's just one opinion among many and shouldn't we let all a thousand flowers bloom you know uh, obviously what we're involved in now is the slow and difficult and delicate business of reestablishing the boundaries within which a healthy kind of liberalism could function and, and yeah, that's exactly where I land on it. And I think that's very well said. Um, the, when you sort of erase God from the founding and the, the founding of liberalism, actually, and the, the articulation and the foundation of liberalism, then, um, you know, of course, you can you can make this argument much more easily. But I, I don't think it's sort of historically accurate or, or fair to do so that, you know, level of erasure. But I do think, you know, when when we've sort of erased God from society ourselves in the postmodern world, then yes, liberalism will will fail. And Spencer, that uh, brings me to another question. Um, <laughs> there's, are you a particular, like, do you have a particular interest in, in Russian history? Uh, only a new interest. So okay, I, I was going to say, the answer to that might be no. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't put myself as a, like a great Russophile. Um, no, I would, I would call myself a Russophile, but not an, an expert in any way. <laughs> <laughs> I, I was just curious as to how you sort of see Putin where Putin, and let's not do the like armchair psychologist thing with Putin that so many people seem to enjoy doing. Although in sure. a nuclear world, you, you're sort of forced to do that to some extent because the man could push the button whenever he wants, um, so to speak. <laughs> but um, how do you think he sees himself or where do you think he fits in as a character in uh, this this sort of uh, battle, not not even battle, but the, the, the relationship between East and West as it's evolved, um, you know, especially in the scope of time that we know he focuses on. Yeah, so I am definitely going to be cribbing here from other people who know <laughs> a lot more than I do. And especially I'm, I'm just going to cite without without claiming to represent his views. I'm, I'll cite Michael Millerman, who's a, a student of uh, Alexander Dugan, uh, who seems to be kind of one of the prominent uh, drivers of or articulators, let's say, of, of current ideology in the in the Russian upper crust. And, I, you know, from from outside, it seems to me that. Putin is I wouldn't say that Putin views himself as as in some grand struggle between East and West, per se. But there is a lot in in Dugan, in this kind of philosopher about like the conflict between, uh, you know, moral decadence and moral confidence, the conflict between sort of, you know, uh, dissipate societies and masculine societies, you know, masculine society versus gynecocracies, um, you know, sort of feminized societies. And I, I do think that there is an element here of, you know, have you heard of the, the GAE, the Global American Empire, which yeah. spells gay? Yeah. yeah. So uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm sure I figured you would have, but for, for the listeners, right, this idea that uh, that America is basically an exporter of nothing except a sort of denatured and decadent ideology of decline that involves really perverted ideas about sex and incredibly sort of anti-traditionalist, the erosion of all tradition. And what's, what's so hard and funny about this is that uh, 
you know, there is a, a sense in which you could make that case. You know, when I watched the Taliban covering over murals of George Floyd in the wake <laughs> of our departure, I, you know, you do start to think that America, not America, the, the country or America, the I, ideal regime, but America as currently ruled um, is sort of exporting this this obviously flawed and, and failing idea about how to live and imposing it in a very imperial way <laughs> wherever it goes yeah um and and so i think that i think that putin probably sees himself as like the the grand champion or defender against that um and and always you know bad guys sort of rise up when the good guys like fail to do their part as good guys you know so i would i would sort of cast it that way it's like if america continues to fall down on its job of being the good guys then naturally you're going to get thugs and cretins who you know represent themselves as saviors of the world and have more of a case than they would if america were uh, you know living out the obvious excellence of its creed so that's that's one thing and then the other thing is that i do think he views the fall of the Soviet Union is like the great catastrophe of world history and, uh, you know, saw sort of, uh, you know, as a KGB agent sort of saw the Soviet Union as the next step of, in, you know, of Russia's greatness. And that now, you know, I, I do think he wants to reclaim that. So there's there's sort of a more maybe straightforward and easy answer there, which is just like get that territory back. Well, yeah, it seems though that he is more interested in, and my history is not uh, on the level that yours is, but he, he's more interested in the Russian Empire than maybe the Soviet Empire, and the distinction being the the sort of pre-Soviet Russian Empire, um, because he the quote in his uh, long speech was, if you don't miss the Soviet Union, you have no heart. I'm paraphrasing, but if you if you want the Soviet Union back, you have no brain. It was something. It was something to that extent. Um, it's 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 interesting to uh, see him chasing something that does seem to be so distant, historically distant for for so many people, but does mean so much to him. And it actually, you know, probably means a lot to people in Eastern Europe and to people in Russia. And uh, it means a lot to people in Ukraine, depending on, you know, whatever side they come down on the question. This history is is important to them. Yeah, well, that's a great distinction that you make, and I, I would agree with it. I, I don't think that Putin's crusade is about, like, the, the great proletarian revolution at all. But I think that, you know, Americans could do with understanding this much. You know, when the Soviet Union fell, I think life expectancy plummeted some ridiculous amount. Um, and, and, you know, because we know now what a terrible, tyrannical nightmare the Soviet Union itself was, it's easy. And because we were in this kind of long uh, stalemate and, and sort of Cold War with them, um, it's easy for us to confuse that opposition between America and the Soviet Union with a, a, just a desire to simply see Russia and the Russian people suffer and be obliterated off the face of the map. And I think, you you know, speaking as a, a sort of general supporter of sanctions, I think you see this in the rhetoric about sanctions, like pound their economy into the ground. And it's sort of like, you know, this is a people that have been now, you know, for well more than 100 years under the thumb of one oppressive dictator or another, you know, there, there is a um, 
a real vindictiveness in America's approach, not to Putin, but to Russians. Yes. Um, and and we, at home and abroad, you know. Um, and, and so, yeah, I think that there's another place where, where Putin, unfortunately, gains purchase because of our sort of inadequacy or our uh, cavalier misunderstanding of the situation that he can say, look, they just they just want to to crush you. And what what I want is not, yeah, not to like, you know, reestablish the famines or to start centralizing the food supply or any of that, but simply to get back, get us back to the place where we were powerful on the world stage again, like like we deserve to be. We're a you know vast civilization. And this this part is true. Like Russia is a vast civilization with a great treasure of of culture and history. And it would be great if it were ruled by somebody who is not a disastrous psychopathic psychopathic thug. But here we are. <laughs> Although that has plenty of precedent in history as well. <laughs> also, yes, also true. Um, and it's, and this is a totally different equation. I mean, the the entire concept, we talked about this on the podcast all the time last week and kept coming back to it, is that the invention of nuclear technology is incredibly new. We're less than 100 years into this experiment. Mm. It has played out in less than some people's lifetimes, and yet it is the most dramatic event in human history, the most consequential event in human history, because Putin can have a, a GDP the size of uh, you know, a medium-sized state in the United States and have the, <laughs> the <laughs> immense power to invade a sovereign nation um, that he does because the West has to balance the, the very real concerns of, of nuclear fallout um, when where all of this is concerned. And, and that just seems historically to be a very peculiar um, and a very new thing that we sort of think of as old because, you know, technology, the, the sort of hyper novel rate of change, um, you know, makes us feel, it makes millennials feel old compared to Gen Z to the point where they now have all these nostalgic listicles about things that happened 10 years ago, um, <laughs> let alone 100 years ago. Um, it, it, it's so strange to me how accustomed it's, it's like we see it, it, after the Cold War, it's like we thought we finally we mastered this nuke thing. <laughs> and clearly we haven't. Uh, I think I did I lose you. Are you still there? I'm still here. Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I, you cut off it after the Cold War for me. Oh, oh, okay. Let me go back to the question. I was just going to say, it, it's like after the Cold War, we just decided like, wow, we've really mastered this nuke thing. <laughs> clearly, <laughs> clearly we have not. Yeah, yeah. No, I think that this phenomenon, nukes are probably the biggest example of it, but it doesn't just apply to nukes that people our age were born into... A highly unusual world order in a positive mm. sense. We were born into, and you see this also. I've just been writing all about this return to normalcy rhetoric, which was kind of surrounded Biden's entry into the presidency. Yes. And that's a that's a crib that's borrowed from Warren G. Harding's famous speech in in 1920 as he was running for the kind of post-World War I presidency and also coming out of a pandemic, right? Spanish influenza, also, you know, mm. feeling like the world is in a kind of disastrous free fall and offering what he called, a, you know, he said, he said America needs normalcy now. It doesn't need to be constantly on edge. We don't need to, you know, 
offered this platform, won in a landslide, proceeded to die in office, and whereupon World War II happened. So, you know, like, none of which was his fault. Like, it's not like, you know, it's not like Harding came in and, and then totally failed to deliver on his promise of normalcy. Just that what he meant by normalcy was actually something highly specific and not particularly normal in the scope of human reality. What he meant was stability and prosperity. And, and America had been blessed in other times to sort of have those things. And the, by return to normalcy, he just meant like we're not going to have any more big wars and we're not going to have any greater threats to our peace and prosperity. Biden, the people who celebrated Biden for a return to normalcy meant exactly the same thing, you know, and the, the thing about it, especially with Biden, is like it just ain't going to happen. You know, we're, we're living in a world where digital technology is rapidly transforming the world, as you say, and we have a piece on the board that has yet to really sort of stabilize, which is the nuclear piece. You know, like it's not like we've reached some agreement, some decision about what's going to happen in the nuclear age with with war. We've got plenty of powers, some of them actively in partnership with the Biden administration, you know, that that would would be dangerous in a in a nuclear situation and sort of threaten to develop nukes to use against us. And I'm thinking about Iran. I'm thinking about North Korea. Not all of them, obviously. In, in partnership with with Biden, but all of them, you know, dangerous uh, bad guys who who know that America has a kind of policy of weakness at the moment, um, and and yeah, we we were born into this bizarre moment that we just took for normal. We thought this this is the baseline, um, but of course the the baseline in this fallen world is uh, sin and war and disease you know it's 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 not anything like what we experienced um and and this is the reality you know when we talk about people coming back to reality like this is the reality that people are are either fleeing from at the moment or reckoning with and no matter how advanced our technology becomes we, there's no substitute for you know actual engagement with the problems on the ground and with uh you know with with sober seriousness about how bad things can get so that point about Harding is fascinating, and it leads me to the the last question that I wanted to pick your brain on, which is Camille Paglia, is, she's not alone in this, but she talks about how um, the, the normalization of transgenderism is a sign of, in cultures, is a sign that they're sort of in the late stage of a culture, um, mm -hmm. or in societies, is a sign that they're in the late stage of a culture. And Spencer, I want to ask if you have the same read on the situation, because that gets to whether, you know, basically what you were saying earlier is like, you never want to give the bad guys a point. <laughs> yeah, America right. is, is doing a great job of giving the bad guys a point, even though they're still sort of obviously deeply, deeply wrong in the aggregate, um, it, it gets to this question of whether we're sort of capable of recapturing the best of liberalism and, and channeling it for the peace and prosperity that is it is so capable of, of delivering to uh, the most possible people. So do you see us as sort of, do you see similar signs, whether it's in transgenderism or anything else, uh, that, that our, our culture is in its late stage? Well, you know, I think that there are kind of two ways of looking at this. One is sort of the Palia way of thinking, well, you know, when gender, when like basic facts about the world, including sexual dimorphism, including sex, 
are under sort of assault or in question or you're trying to play around with them, like then you are really just a culture that doesn't have a will to live. Like you just, uh, you're, you're so, yeah, you're so prosperous and decadent that you just, you know, you, you can't even be bothered to acknowledge that there are men and there are women. Um, and I think that there is a, a lot of that, like our, our, our current situation couldn't exist except in a context of sort of extreme late stage late stage decadence and and there is by the way such a thing as going through decadence and going through renewal without you know ending your civilization and having to build again 100 or 500 years down the line you know sometimes uh the the roman republic falls and you know you have to wait until florence for another great republic or whatever um and the renaissance you know and then you wait until the renaissance and 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 sometimes you get uh, sort of a, a, a more qualified, you know, cycle within the life of a nation. So all I'm saying is like America doesn't have to fall for, for us to get past this thing. But I do think that there's another dimension to the trans stuff, which is the transhumanism stuff. Mm -hmm. and, and that is actually not about our past, but about our future. It's about the fact that our technology is threatening to actually break down the boundaries of our bodies and our kind of humanity. And my colleague James Poulos, is, as you know, talks about this a lot and with much greater sort of acumen than, than I. But basically, you know, when you start seeing stuff about, we, well, we can have artificial wombs yes. so that women don't have to bear the burden of child rearing, you know, or, or, or we can perfect hormone intervention so entirely that you can go from male to female and back again or indeed we can upload our whole consciousness into a metaverse where our digital avatars aren't human at all they're they're pu puppy dogs or they are demons or they're whatever mark zuckerberg makes available for us to present as um which is a real thing i mean uh, i'm not actually just like being flip here this is actually if you watch the the metaverse uh promotional material you'll you'll see this and there are pronouns now for pup self and demon self and any number of other kind of extravagant options because what we're really facing down is the reality of like whether a human being is a thing and whether it's good to be a human being or not. Um, and, and there is going to be a, like a serious civilizational confrontation over how to continue being human as the tech as technology continues to just spiral out of control and a lot of these fights that we've been talking about this whole time are kind of that underneath right like do we believe that we are created in the image of god and that uh, it's good the way we are and and that we're trying to enhance and celebrate our our, our sort of created nature um, or do we believe that actually the whole thing is just clay for us to manipulate uh, in in order to achieve maximum pleasure for maximum people right I, I couldn't agree more with that analysis and uh as a, in a not a proud but an ashamed oculus user um <laughs> we, it, it does come up a, a decent amount on the show because you're right that this is a people like to think of postmodernism sort of in outside this conversation about technology but it's very much a function of 
technology. And when you combine um, this, this new technology with the, the total detachment from uh, reality, the total detachment from virtue, the total detachment from truth, we're heading in an incredibly dark di direction where people are profiting off of um, detaching ourselves from our, our human instincts and, and from nature. And it's incredibly dark. And Spencer, I knew that you would have a great take on it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, I'm I'm honored, and I'm I'm happy not to have disappointed too terribly, uh, too terribly much. And I think, by the way, that you know your Oculus is not inherently evil. I just think it's that, not. Like, yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. But but we are going to have to figure out how to use those things. No, I think that's a good point because I was actually thinking about this th this morning that like. It, <sighs> for all of the tech bashing that I do and the right does, um, the goal is really to to be sure that tech is is moderated to sort of be in line with human nature and right. with our sort of evolutionary uh, functions and instincts and and to keep us tethered to to who we actually are and, and what is actually fulfilling and satisfying and and pleasing to God. But um, you, you know, if you are just constantly saying this is this is uh, of the devil, which some of it certainly is, yeah. then you're, you're sort of implying we want to go back and just, you know, live like uh, caveman, which I would really rather not do. <laughs> I don't know about you, Spencer. <laughs> I too enjoy uh, polio vaccines. <laughs> yes, I mean, there's just, like at, at this point, you know, the amount of like legitimate blood, sweat, and tears that has has gone into advancements that have actually saved many lives. Um, right. It would be it would be a foolish blessing to entirely dispense with or to use unwisely. Spencer Clavin, if you got through this podcast without subscribing to Young Heretics, <laughs> you are an idiot. Um, Spencer Clavin, thank you so much for for coming back on the show. It was great to catch up, and it was fantastic. I knew you would be the perfect person and to have on to to give us the the sort of western perspective that we need to interpret and digest this this very difficult conflict it was such a pleasure emily thank you very much for having me on of course spencer clavin is the host of the young heretics podcast you have been listening to another edition of the federalist radio hour i'm emily jashinsky culture editor here at the federalist we will be back soon with more until then be lovers of freedom and anxious for the fray mm -hmm.